So they give evidence of divine sonship and divine ownership in their lives. And the pathway to both divine sonship and divine ownership is this word surrender. That's how you get there. Disciples get to a place of divine sonship and divine ownership through this word called surrender. And surrender is rarely external. Um, surrender cannot happen in two hours. You can start the process. You can, um, you, you can symbolically do things that um, um, signify surrender, but really surrender is, the, is a voluntary progressive yielding. It's a voluntary, it's not coerced, it's a voluntary progressive yielding of what? Of my will to someone else. In this case, someone else's, Jesus Christ. Towards what end? So that he can reshape it as the song says, to whatever he wants me to be. That's perhaps a definition of surrender. And to get to a place of divine sonship and divine ownership, both of which, which should be evident in a disciple's life, the pathway is surrender. And surrender may be defined as a voluntary progressive yielding of my will to someone else so that, in our case it's Jesus, so that he can reshape it to whatever he wants me to be. And the surrendering of the will is, is, is the greatest battle because most other things can be surrendered. Money can be surrendered. Uh, even life can be surrendered. But the will is the hardest thing to surrender. And yet that is what leads to divine sonship and divine ownership. And the thing is, God never forces a person to surrender his will. God never forces a person to surrender his will. And God never begs. God does not beg. Paul would implore people on God's behalf, but um, God doesn't beg me. Not because he's proud, but because coercion is not his method. Coaxing, manipulation is not his method. He doesn't give us sob stories. He could have really milked crucifixion, but he didn't. So he doesn't beg and he doesn't force me to surrender my will. But he waits patiently for me to surrender my will. The problem is the more I prolong it and the more I resist surrendering my will, the less time I have on earth to complete what he wants me to complete. That's the problem. The more I prolong a surrendering of my will, the more I resist surrender, the less time I have on earth. So any questions before we go on from there or anything you want to add? Okay. So Oswald Chambers talks about three kinds of surrender. And uh, um, so I've taken the subheadings from some of his writings. And the first surrender is uh, surrender to rest. Surrender to rest. But the way we see rest is very different from 
how most writers and authors see it. So the first surrender, the first surrender is to rest, <clears throat> is to rest, meaning we, we surrender our lives to this thing called rest. We surrender our lives to rest. And why do I say first? Because there is an order here. If you miss this order, things won't go well, even though you have a desire to surrender. So the first surrender is to rest in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus did say, come unto me all that are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Uh, but the way we see rest um, will uh, take us back about four or five years when we taught about rest. So when we say the first surrender is to rest, we are saying that we cease from self-generated means of sustenance. We cease from self-generated means of sustenance. We cease from self-generated means of sustenance. Meaning, we, rest requires that I let go of ways that I uh, come up with or conceive or um, fabricate or um, manufacture to sustain myself. No, it is to seize from self-generated means of sustenance. This is what God was asking Israel to do in the desert when he said, listen, I don't want you to bake bread anymore because bread was the usual means of sustenance for most nations in the uh, time that Israel was going through the wilderness. And he said, you shall not live by bread. And I'll humble you. And what he meant by humbling there was, I'll teach you how to be dependent on me. And so he said, I'll teach you how to be dependent on me so that you may be sustained by the proceeding word of God. And say, therefore, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we are sustained by the proceeding word of God and his presence. And this is what sustained Israel in the desert. Even though they were a stiff-necked people, they were sustained by the presence of God and the proceeding word of God. So the first surrender is to rest. If you don't get to this phase of surrender, there is no question of going into the other phases of surrender. This, it's not possible. It will warp, it will bend. This, this is the essence of divine sonship. Jesus lived like this. This is what makes us sons because it allows us to live the life of another. It also means letting the covenants of, and principles of God go to work for us. Letting the covenants, letting the covenants and principles of God work for us. So just like um, uh, gravity works and you don't have to do anything, you don't have to pray, you don't have to wait in suspended um, anticipation. When you throw a ball up, you know that the ball will come down because there is a principle called gravity and gravity will go to work. You don't have to exert your sweat, your muscles, you throw something up, you know it'll come down. And so in the same way, there are covenants and principles that God has established 
that we live by. This is going into rest where a farmer plants a seed and he knows because of Genesis 8.22 or because his father has told him that as long as the earth remains, there shall be summer and winter, there shall be sowing and reaping. So these are principles of covenants that already exist and they go to work for us. This is what rest looks like, where we do not toil because God has established things that begin to work for us and we don't mess with them because he's made things well. You have done all things well, just look at my life. The fourth one is entering into the joy of God. These are the, 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 this is what rest looks like. And this is the first thing we surrender to. And we know that we need to surrender to this because in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, Paul actually says that labor to enter into this rest, meaning strive to enter into this rest. And you literally have to surrender your normal way of living that you've been taught as a child into coming to this place where you surrender. And so the fourth one is entering into the joy of God Entering into the joy of God. Why? Because you see the end from the beginning. Joy of God. Because you see the end from the beginning. This is what Jesus saw in Hebrews chapter 12 verse, or 13, 12 I think. Verse 1 or 2, or verse 2 or 3. Where it says, for the joy that was set before him. He knew the end from the beginning. He knew what would happen. That his, uh, God's son would not see decay. That he would rise again. That Isaiah 53 already said that from the death of his son will come a harvest. And so um, rest requires that I enter into the joy of God. Because you see the end from the beginning. Because rest was always joyful. The next one is to labor to enter into it labor to enter into it and that's the scripture I just gave labor to enter into it you have to labor to enter into rest you have to surrender to it there is an act of the will where you're saying I, I surrender I, I, I will strive to enter into it uh, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 10 says that God has entered into rest meaning God has ceased from all his works Meaning God has already established, thing and established things and now since he has finished everything, it is finished. He says, Jacob, why don't you enter into this rest? Rest with me. Rest is not the absence of work. It involves work but it's not something you do on your own. It is listening to what God is saying, doing what he asks you to do. And so we labor to enter into this rest or the seventh day position. On the seventh day, God rested. If you go to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 10, Hebrews 4.10. Hebrews 4.10. It says there, uh, for he that has, is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his... Let me read. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The message, God himself is at rest. And at the end of the journey, we'll surely rest with God. That is unfortunately a bad translation. That's when you know the message messes up. 
and verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no man may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Which means that if you don't surrender to rest, there is a high likelihood of you entering into disobedience. If you don't enter into rest, there is a high likelihood of you entering into disobedience because you have to do things based on the perspiration of your thinking and your strength. That's all you really have. And so you're bound to make mistakes. And he says, you will end up in disobedience if you don't enter into rest. The next one was, uh, the, the next way we work rest into our lives is a very word, Sabbath or Shabbat, which means to cease or desist from exertion. To cease or desist from exertion. to cease or desist from exertion, which is why when um, uh, Jeevan was talking about how he went up there, and normally the typical way to go about doing stuff when you go on a mission trip like this is to um, war and declare and stomp your feet and all that stuff. Uh, and there might be a time and place for that, but sometimes you have to desist from exertion because these battles are not won by the strength of the horse by the size of the chariot, by might or by power, but by the spirit. And then the last one is, um, that is six. And uh, the seventh one is, uh, surrendering to rest requires living the life of another, requires living the life of another. Living the life of another. Where you decide that this life that you presently have, while it is good, doesn't have what it takes to live the way Christ lived. I no longer live, Christ lives in me, therefore I will live the life of another. We've talked about this, you can go online and listen to teachings on the Feast of Tabernacles, which was basically a festival that celebrated rest. So the first surrender is to rest. If you don't get this right, there's really no question of the next two surrenders because they are so much tougher. And if you go there without learning this, you'll get exploited, you will overextend yourself and you will get exhausted. We'll, we'll talk about that. Any questions on this? I, I, I do think that Acts 29 over the years has learned this, but it is a reminder that we need to live only like this. It's probably uh, one of my greatest strengths to operate out of rest. And it's probably one of our greatest strengths as a church. Even our services show that. That we... We don't, we don't do much during a service. Everything just... <laughs> everything just happens. Any questions? Any questions, guys? Uh, 
And to live the life of another is impossible if you don't live out of relationship. Divine sonship, at the end of the day, is born out of relationship. And that's how you live the life of another. So go home, listen to it again, and remind yourself that, hey, I've got to come to this place where my first surrender is to rest. It's not to anything else but rest. Because if you live by the proceeding word of God, if you decide that you will not uh, live out of self-generated sustenance, if you let the covenants and principles of God go, for work, go to work for you, if you enter into joy so that you can be of good cheer even when things are difficult and overcome because you know the end from the beginning. And the end and the beginning is not some kind of an outcome. It is Jesus Christ. If you begin to labor every time you find yourself out of rest, if you begin to labor to enter back and strive to get back into this place where you live by what God says, not an iota more, not an iota less. If you desist from exertion and learn to be still, if you allow the life of another that already exists in you to begin to live out from you, then you are now ready, having surrendered yourself to rest, you're now ready to go to the next phase, which is surrender my right to myself. Surrender my right to myself. To surrender my right to myself. The second surrender is the surrender of my right to myself. And we have a right to ourselves. It was given us by the Creator. Which is why He gave us a will. If we didn't have a right to ourselves, He would not have given us uh, each individual uh, will. He wouldn't have done that. But the surrender of my right to myself. In John, sorry, in Matthew uh, 16, 24, it says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross and follow me. I've been reading a few verses like that and it's odd how the follow me is always at the end. Uh, we have a tendency to say, follow me and then you can uh, later on deny yourself and take up the cross and stuff like that. But whenever Jesus says, talks, he usually puts follow me at the end of the sentence and before that he says, if you want to, f uh, anyone who wants to, uh, desires to come after me. Let him deny him, himself, take up the cross and follow me. In other words, here's what he's saying. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my disciple, you must give up the right to yourself. You must give up the right to yourself, to me, as in to him. If you want to be my disciple, you must give up your right to yourself, to me. Amazing religion we have, eh? I love it. It is so difficult sometimes. Not so difficult. It so goes against the grain of everything that the world says. So in other words, what he's saying is, and scripture backs this up, you are not your own. You are mine. 
to plant, bury, break, pour, multiply, distribute as I please. But again, he does not coerce, he doesn't take over till there is surrender. You're not your own, you are his. You are mine to send, to plant, to bury, to break, to pour, to multiply, to distribute as he sees fit. This is the surrender of the will. And uh, just because I went to Uttarakhand doesn't qualify me for this. That might be a trip. How about again tomorrow? How about... And that's just a trip. This is what he's asking for. I find this a stage that we... I mean, the third stage, <laughs> we don't really talk about it because I don't think there's enough experiential knowledge in this church to go beyond talking about it. But at least we can start working on this, where you surrender your right to yourself, to him. If you want to be my disciple, you must give up the right to yourself. And this is something I've been uh, talking to God about, saying, Father, could you teach me this? How I've surrendered to rest and I've learned that well. Now I must surrender my rights to myself, to you, so that you can send, plant, bury, bury break, uh, pour, multiply, de distribute as you please for the sake of others. Because it's not for your own sake. It's for the sake of others. So then I become your servant, but I can't see you as my servant because you are his servant. That's how it works. It's not reciprocal relationship where I am your servant, so therefore you are my servant. No, I'm your servant, you are God's servant. You're not my servant. And so his guests, he, he will send you, plant you, bury you, break you, pour you out, multiply you, distribute you as he pleases. And who is he doing this to for? He's doing it for his guests who come to him. And who are his guests? It can be a believer, it can be a non-believer, it can be a prisoner, it can be a prince. Doesn't matter who it is. You are now at his disposal. Because the moment you surrender your right to you, yourself, look at what you become. Servant son. The moment you surrender your right to yourself, you become a servant son. If you look at John 12, 24 to 26, it kind of sums up this whole idea of I will break you, pour you, bury you, and do what I want with you because you have decided that you're surrendering yourself to me. John chapter 12, verse 24. Listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. If anyone of you wants to serve me, then follow me. Then you'll be where I am, ready to serve at a moment's notice. The Father will honor and reward anyone who serves me. John 12, 24 to 26. Guys, it's necessary first to surrender to rest, which we talked about, 
And if you want a photograph of what we wrote on the board, you can get it from um, Maurice and he may charge you. But uh, the reason we have to surrender to rest, which is to live by the proceeding word of God, is because if you, if you surrender your right to yourself without surrendering to rest, here's what's going to happen. You won't know when you're being exploited. You won't know when is, how much is enough. Because now you've become a servant, but you've become a servant to the whims and fancies of environment, people, conditions, church, pastor. And now you're not necessarily hearing God. You're hearing everything and everyone. What happens then is you get exhausted, you get exploited. Nothing wrong with being exploited, but why get exploited unnecessarily? Get exploited by unbelievers, not necessarily by believers if you can avoid it. You get exploited, you get exhausted, and you get overextended in the sense you never know which is God and which is not God. This is why it is first important to surrender to rest before you surrender your right to yourself. And when people don't, you operate, you will literally destroy yourself if, you do, if you're not careful. You will destroy yourself. Because let's assume you're a servant and you get a call tomorrow saying, come and serve here. While you're serving there, you get another call saying, come and serve here. And while you're doing that, someone else says, come and do this. What are you going to say no to? And how are you going to discriminate if you first didn't learn how to surrender to living by the proceeding word of God? Any questions? Yep. Live the life of another. Um, uh, to live the life of another is to let Christ in me either do all the work or take advantage of the work he has already done. Um, the, the example I usually give is this. If you're uh, in the hospital and uh, if someone has to uh, have, uh, what are those things called that you hook to somebody else when they breathe? Respirator. Yeah, so they take a patient into the hospital and then they take a bedpan and they knock you out uh, so that, because if, if you hook the uh, respirator to a person while they're breathing, then your breathing begins to conflict with the respirator. So they normally give you some kind of a sedative. In the olden days, they would just knock you off with the bedpan. But now that they have sedatives, they give you a sedative and you kind of uh, doze off. And when, they, when you doze off, uh, they connect you to the respirator so the respirator can start breathing for you. Otherwise, there's always a conflict. To live the life of another is to either let what Jesus has already done go to work for you or let the Jesus who lives in you begin to do the work while you sit back and take the credit. So it completely removes all anxiety, all pressure, all need to do stuff to make stuff happen. You just listen to him, do what he tells you to. Living the life of another is what Jesus was doing in John chapter 10 and John chapter 11. Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. 
And he, instead of reacting from his own strength and power and knowledge of his father, does something so different where he does not go to raise a sick man. When the sick man dies, he still does not go. When the sick man has been dead for four days, he finally goes. Why? Because he's living only by one thing, the proceeding word of God, nothing else. And the strange thing is, Jesus did not heal anybody because he had the power to heal them. Jesus healed everybody because of the presence of the Spirit in his life to heal. He was as limited when it came to healing as I am. This is very hard for people to sometimes agree to or understand. But the fact remains that Jesus was as limited as I am when it came to healing people. And all his healing happened by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he got it right every time. Because he learned how to let the life of God in him work through him. He never had a problem with how am I going to take care of my mother and my four brothers and sister. How am I going to take care of them? Because he knew that if he didn't take care of his family as the oldest one, he was worse than an infidel. He said it himself. So he had to take care of them. How he could take care of them, he doesn't know. How he would pay taxes, he didn't know. How work would come, he didn't know. But he was so sure that he could, one, depend on God doing stuff because he knew what his father could do. This is living the life of another where you do not do anything except what he tells you to, not an iota more. It is absolute splendid rest. But when he tells you to do something, you do it with all your strength. You're not lazy. Like Rhonda was reading out, when you, have to, when you should run, you will run, not walk. So it's not an absence of work ethic, but it is absolutely the absence of any strain, any machination, any exertion of strength or mind power that is self-generated. You will use your mind power when he tells you to use it. You will use your physical strength when he tells you to use it. But you do not create things for yourself through your thinking or your own strength. I know you've heard this before, but for the sake of the tape and for those that haven't heard it before, Ezekiel 44, verse 17 to 19. When you come to minister before me, God said to the Levites, you will not wear linen turbans or linen loincloths because I do not want you to perspire. And the reason he said do not perspire is not because he had a problem with it, but because he wanted to bring out a point that when you come before me, I do not want you to exert your human thinking and I do not want you to exert your human strength. And so he forbade the Levites from wearing lin anything except linen turbans and linen loincloths because anything else would cause them to perspire and he did not want the ministers before him to perspire. Fascinating. No self-exertion, Jacob. Absolutely no self-exertion. Was there self-exertion in the quail being brought into the wilderness? No. Was there self-exertion in the water that came out of the rock? No. Was there self-exertion in the slippers that weren't worn out? No. Was there self-exertion in the clothes that were not wearing out? No. Was there self-exertion in keeping the scorpions and the serpents away? No. Was there self-exertion in bringing shade during hot days and warmth during cold nights? No. There was absolutely no self-exertion. Was there work? Yes. You had to go with baskets and collect. 
You had to strike the rock or speak to the rock. That was all they did. They lived by the proceeding word of God and the presence of God. And that is the surrender that is first asked of us. If you do not surrender to rest, you cannot successfully surrender your right to yourself because you will be someone who destroys yourself. Because you will either be exploited or you will exhaust yourself or you will overextend yourself through flesh-driven ideas of servanthood. But the moment you surrender your rights to yourself, remember what you become. You become a servant son. Philippians 2.7. Philippians 2.7. Can someone read it out? Kind of loudly. From a decent version. Philippians 2.7. What is a decent version? We'll find out when you read it. <laughs> Philippians 2.7. Yeah, gave up the right to himself and became a servant. Now, a servant, and we talked about this, I think, in 2010, a servant is permanently, this is what giving up the right to yourself looks like, is permanently subjected to his master. Is permanently subjected to his master. This is what giving up your right to yourself means. And this is why it's harder than um, lifting up your hands in a service and saying, I surrender. Two, a servant is totally dependent on his master. It's a deliberate separation from other means uh, of dependence, like my boss, like my salary, like my inheritance, like my relatives, like my family. It's a deliberate separation from all other ways that we actually connect our dependence to. A servant is totally dependent on his master. Three. He serves his master's guests. He serves his master's guests. And it doesn't matter that it might be your neighbor. It might be someone you don't like. It might be a prince. It might be a prisoner. It might be a believer. It might be an unbeliever who killed your dad or mom. doesn't matter. For a servant functions alongside other servants so there is order here and the functions are not the same and sometimes based on functions some servants may be uh, higher up the pecking order from the view of the world uh, but not in the eyes of God at the end of the day all God looks at in every servant is faithfulness and so it doesn't matter whether you're bottom rung or top rung your faithfulness determines your expansion. Five. He works without expectation of pay. He works without expectation of pay. Really, he works without expectation of pay? Yes, because he had an opportunity when he received Christ on the cross to be set free, 
And having been set free, he goes back to Christ and says, here is my ear. Can you nail my earlobe to the doorpost? Because even though you've set me free, I come running back to be your servant. And at the end of the day, after having done everything for you, Jesus, I will say that this was just my duty and I'm an unprofitable servant. It's just nuts how this kingdom works. And the sixth one is uh, he owns nothing but stewards everything on behalf of his master. He owns nothing but stewards everything. on behalf of his master. This is what giving up the right to yourself looks like. I, I think we'll stop here because um, there's still a long ways to go and I don't want to rush it. I'll just let you know. What, or maybe I'll complete just this section. We'll leave the third section for next time. Um, so when I give up the right to myself, when I decide that, uh, yes, I've learned how to surrender to rest. I learn how to surrender to doing only what God tells me, nothing else, no other means of self-generated sustenance. Having learned that now, oh God, I come and say, I would like to learn how to surrender my right to myself. And uh, the moment I surrender my right to myself, I realize that, oh, shucks, I've just gone from son to servant son. It was great to be I'm a child of God, yes I am, but now I'm a child of God and a servant. And then this kicks in, that I'm permanently subjected to the master. So this is not voluntary work anymore. I've nailed my ear to the door and I'm saying, I'm here for you to send, to break, to pour out, to bury, to multiply and to distribute to whomsoever you choose to do that with. Then I realize I'm permanently subjected to the master. And this is the great thing about the whole story of Isaac on the altar. He stayed on the altar. I do not pull myself off the altar. And these are the things we must learn. I pray God that we learn how to stay on the altar and not take time off. And then I realize that since I have surrendered my right to myself, I now am also saying that I will not fend for, work for, try to support myself because I'm totally dependent on the master. Imagine what I'm saying, eh? that I won't fend for, I won't work for, I won't try to create ways for me to sustain myself. Because this kind of servanthood is the kind of servanthood where this benevolent, wonderful God master that I have, I can be totally dependent on. Because otherwise I will serve two or more masters. You cannot. I'm at the beck and call of two of more masters otherwise. Three, I will serve the master's guests and it is not left to me to discriminate. I don't have a choice. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. The great thing is Jesus epitomized this. God at his heart is a servant. One of the core essences of God is that he's a server. Servant makes it sound more noble. Let's just call him server. The core essence of God is that of a server. So, the third thing then becomes, I'll serve my master's guests and I do not have a choice in who. I, I do not have a choice in who. One of the things that's happened to 
Christianity all around the world, especially the Western Christianity, is we let our personalities dictate where, whom, how, when. Hey, that's just not me. Who's asking? Nobody asked you. You're a servant. I'm not talking about you being my servant. Like I said, I am your servant, but I can't expect you to be my servant. You are God's servant. That's how this works. It also means that if I surrender my right to myself, that I function alongside other servants, and some of them may have positions that um, they aren't fully uh, fulfilling well, but that is when Jesus turns to you and says, what is it to you? I once remember talking to the Lord about a person who was being unfaithful and the Lord said to me, who are they being unfaithful to? I said to you. And I felt the Lord saying, so then what is it to you? Because if they're being unfaithful to me, if you're feeling terribly righteous and indignant about it, tell me why. (laughs) They They didn't do me any harm. So if a servant is being unfaithful in his function, I must learn that I still work alongside other servants because his house cannot be run by one steward or one servant. There are scores of them. And some of them you will find are iron sharpening iron and that's exactly what they think of you too. But you work alongside servants that function in different capacity and God does not look at their function, he looks at their faithfulness. I'm very sure of this. This is not some cliched line that makes us all feel equal. It is just that functions are not equal, but faithfulness is the measure. And that is the only thing that will have you hear those marvelous words. And surprisingly, the marvelous words are not well done, good and faithful son. Go figure. This is so precious to God. It is not well done, good and faithful son. If I surrender my right to myself, I must um, work without expectation of pay. Meaning, there is no, if I do this for you, what will you do for me? My God, I dislike it when I hear stuff like, okay, what has God done for me lately? Why should I still follow him? Thank God we don't think like that. But do not entertain that for a second, right? We work without the expectation of pay. Because we are provided all the essentials that were provided in the Garden of Eden. Why would you need pay when you have everything that Adam had in the Garden of Eden is provided to you? Why would you expect pay? What was provided in the Garden of Eden? Dignity and worth. Doesn't matter that you're a bond servant, you have dignity and worth. Made in his image. What was provided in the Garden of Eden? Security. I will put you in a garden east of Eden. They were secure there. What was provided in the Garden of Eden? You know, I remember um, me preaching this at uh, the church in uh, uh, Chennai and Chad's dad summed up the whole thing because I was speaking in, uh, in a Tamil service and he came and said to the congregation, you need to understand that nobody can touch you or lay a hand on you because you're secure in God. I thought to myself, man, that's taking my message to an extreme. I wouldn't probably have said that. But the moment he said that, I knew that that is what I must expect for you, for me, and for us. If security is what he's giving, then it is that kind of security that he's giving when nobody can lay a hand on you because he guarantees the essentials of Eden to his servants, which is why we work without expectation of pay. 
Third, what was provided in the garden? He, he, he said, I will give you provision. He didn't say work and I will give you provision. He said, I'll give you provision and then because I work, you work. What was given in the Garden of Eden? You were given companionship and intimacy, both with Eve and with God who walked with Adam and Eve in the cooler garden. Guaranteed intimacy, the same kind that Jesus had. Hey, you and I get there. We will say with Jesus sitting at the well, my food is to do the will of the Father and to finish it. That's what we'll say. What else was given in the Garden of Eden? They were given a purpose. And what is our purpose? It's very simple. Make disciples of all nations and build Christ-reflecting mature churches that prevail. This is our purpose. If this is not your purpose, then we'll have to preach about destiny and big dreams and stuff like that. All of it is true. But if the horizon does not have this singular purpose, that Jesus Christ's purpose was make more disciples, make disciples of all nations, build Christ-reflecting churches that prevail. If that is not the end goal, then it does not matter whether you're a businessman, whether you're an engineer, whether you're a naval architect, whether you're a construction worker. If that is not the final purpose, then your purpose is unworth squat. What else did he have in the Garden of Eden? Dignity, security, provision, companionship, purpose, freedom. Freedom to eat of anything except one. And that was put so that he would have to make a choice. If free will was not given, there wouldn't be a tree. The tree was necessitated because of the free will given to man. Freedom, freedom to everything is permissible for us. But because we are servants, we don't think in terms of permission, we think in terms of beneficial. Freedom to engage with the Father just like Jesus did. Freedom to have the Spirit of God live in us and live through us. Freedom to dance under the sun. Because we have been provided these essentials as a servant, you work without the expectation of pay. And final one, we will stop at this, uh, is that once I give up my right to myself, I realize that all that I presently possess, I do not own. And that it may be taken any time, not taken, it may be asked of me any time to take what I have at present for breaking, pouring, distributing, multiplying, So I own nothing, but I possess everything. But I cannot exert ownership over it. And so the moment I say I surrender my right to myself, every morning it becomes more important to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Because <laughs> you want two things now. You want God to tell you what to do with what you have and also provide what you need. Because nothing you own is any longer yours. And this becomes difficult. This is not theoretical. This is not theoretical. I, 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 I'm pleading with God, please help me do this because I definitely am not able to do this. Or I, I'm not here at all. But it, it, it is a cry now. So we'll stop here, but the third stage is when you surrender your right to self-determination. You surrender your right to self-determination. Where, to simply put it, you have written it down a certain way. It is to want what your will does not want. It is to want 
what your will does not want. Father, take this cup away from me, but not your will, but mine. I've preached this, I've believed this, I've preached it, and uh, um, it may be true while we are young, but once we are old, it changes. What, what, did, what, what did Jesus say to John and, uh, Peter and John? He said, when you were young, someone dressed you and they took you. But now that you are old, someone will tie your hands together and take you where you do not want to go. It is a r- surrender of the right to self-determination where you do not even get to choose what you want because you now begin to choose what your will does not want to choose. And I'm talking about stuff I don't know. But Jesus is like that. Because I often say God won't send you anywhere you're not ready for and that you don't want to go. Which is true. But he's yearning that you will say anywhere, oh God, because I will will to go where I don't want to go. But we'll talk about that later. Um, So I'll just ask Jane to come back and sing the chorus of that um, 